0: You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. So today's guest on the podcast is Alex Giles. Alex is the Chief Commercial Officer for Arseni Labs, a UK-based science and technology research firm with a mission to develop and deploy cutting-edge solutions for a safer and more secure tomorrow. Alex, welcome to the show.
1: John, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. I have listened to every podcast in this series so far, so I hope that uh, hope that I don't disappoint your uh, your listeners.
0: I really appreciate that. You know, I'm pretty passionate about the topic and. The topic of today's podcast, Seeing Through Walls, a lot of my writings I talk or even presentations across the world, I say one of the game changers to urban operation would be the ability to see through concrete. So I'm pretty excited to talk to you about that. I thought we'd start with, though, um, just to give our audience a little bit of a background. Could you give us some of your background and what ICENI Lab does?
1: Sure. My background, first of all, it's very important to say that I've I've never served. So a complete civilian history. I did my uh, my masters at King's College in London in war studies, which makes me part of a, a pretty extensive mafia of, of that group, and that's been you know really useful through my career. Uh, I went from that, and I, I went and started a conference company, and working primarily for the defense community. I was lucky that from early on, we won a couple of contracts to do events for the for the British Army. And I carried that on for the best part of a decade and then went into the publishing business. I took over a publishing company called Shepherd, I published about half a dozen magazines getting in the defense world. And I did that for about five years and about five years ago, I, I suddenly realized I'd spent almost my entire career in that sort of event and publishing. And I thought, well, I'll go and do something different. I'll go, and, you know, I'll, I'll think about what I want to do with my life. And shortly after I sort of quit all of that, I, I met Kurt, my co-founder, Dr. Dylan Banks, and he, he just started this company, Icene, with a, with a mission to develop uh, technologies across a whole bunch of, uh, of areas, not just defense. And I thought this sounded really exciting. So we joined forces coming on five, six years ago now. And here we are. That's a pretty impressive background.
0: So I know that you and I connected basically through your work with the See-Through Walls technology, and I think more accurately through the recent U.S. National Security Innovation Network Situational Awareness in Dense Urban Environments 2020 Hackathon, long name. I thought maybe I could ask you about that for our listeners. Like, what was the challenge? Who organized it? Kind of what were the requirements that they were asking to be hacked, I guess?
1: Yeah, no, sure. Well, as uh, I'm sure a lot of your your listeners will know, National Security Innovation Network. It's actually now belongs to the Defence Innovation Unit, so it's a it's a subgroup there, and their mission is to connect, I think, particularly small companies with problems. That the Department of Defense has. They've set a whole series of different challenges and the the hackathon that started at the start of uh, this year was, as you write and say, focused on the dense urban environment and particularly to to get better situational awareness. It was, I think, the third or fourth time they'd run this type of event. And the the ones before had been a series of in-person, but of course the situation this year meant that everything had to be online. So it was was conducted for about six months with lots and lots of online events to to get to the end of it.
0: Yeah, I think I also was impressed by some of the partners for the overall whole program, which included the 75th Ranger Regiment, the U.S. Army Combat Capabilities Development Command, the U.S. Army's Training and Doctrine Command Mad Scientists Initiative, even the NATO ACT Innovation Hub. I mean, those are some big players.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Pat Mahaney, oh, I, I know you know very well, he's been on this podcast, was one of the mentors. And, and he, you know, he was one of the guys that gave us a huge amount of time and feedback. As And, and, and to all of the people that were taking part, he gave a huge amount of his time. As did a number of other mentors, the, the 75th Rangers were essentially pinged as the sort of lead organisation to give advice, and you know we had some fantastic conversations with platoon commanders, company commanders, guys that had been downrange very recently, and within the bounds of, of classification, which of course everyone was very careful to you know of, of what was said. The feedback from from those guys was was just invaluable.
0: So back to the hackathon, I know that, like you said, there, there are kind of multiple versions of it, but the one that you're really excited me and I read the page and I'm just nodding up and down that I can't believe that we're advancing in the technology, but it was seeing into the unknown is what the thing said was situational awareness in dense urban environments. But I like the seeing into the unknown part. What were the goals of that specific challenge? Did they have any requirements on you and like what they actually wanted as the end product for the... You're know, just seeing into it. I so you know it's kind of vague, but I'm sure they gave you a lot more requirements.
1: No, no, no sure. Well, I think the exciting thing about it is that they weren't prescriptive about the solution. I and mean, what was said right from the very beginning is, is that we want, you know, we're not just looking for gadgets. You know, we want to see some sort of ideas of solutions. We are bringing a number of things together, and it was really we were encouraged right from the very beginning not to go it alone, to, to form teams. And there was a really good process of which essentially you you could sell yourselves in a sort of a marketplace, talk about what you were bringing to the table, and so sort of formal teams or ad hoc teams were starting to be created from quite early on. That was then followed by these really great mentor experiences where you had individuals from seventy first rangers from other groups. You're talking about. What was the challenge? And you know, I remember right from the very beginning, one of the young platoon commanders he come back from Iraq, and he said, "Look, at the moment, the best thing I, I've got if I want to see into a room, the, the thing that I always use is a, is a mirror on a stick." And we were like, "You know, it's the 21st century. I'm pretty sure we can all do a bit better than that." I think I think we can probably try to come up with a slightly better solution than that. So I think if that's your baseline to a certain extent, that that moment at a door. And the best thing that you can offer that young soldier is a is a mirror on a stick right now. You've really, you know, industry and everyone else has got to do a, a heck of a lot better than that.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I actually remember back in my own experiences being given a, I don't know what it's called, but it was a it was just a piece of wire, basically a, a telescopic thing. You would slide under the door, but you basically look through it and you see this very small pinhole of trying to look around in the room. And of course you're vulnerable because you're standing right in front of the door underneath the hole where you can get this thing underneath there.
1: And you're trying to interpret what you're seeing. You're right. I mean, every second that you're stood outside of cover, it's a hugely vulnerable situation to be in. I can't imagine how incredibly nerve-wracking that's got to be.
0: As I read the website, the narrative description, you develop a system that can collect information on an interior space, transmit that data to both the emergency responders and command and control elements, interpret the data, and present actionable information in an intuitive manner to the operator. On a timeline of minutes to hours, that sounds like a huge challenge.
1: It, it is a huge challenge, and I don't think anyone should pretend right now. And I'm not going to sit here on this podcast and say, "Oh, yeah, you know, six six months later we solved that, and you know, we'll be deploying it, you know, next next quarter." There's a very long way to go. I think ourselves and. A number of the other teams that developed some really clever ideas have given SOCOM, the Army in general, some good ideas and some good pieces of technology that we now need all to build on together. So, But yeah, that vision that you outlined there, there's still a way to go, but I don't think elements of it are not impossible. As I said, we can do a lot better than the current state of affairs.
0: I can't imagine. And that's why I'm excited to talk to you about where we are so far. I also really appreciate the visualization of the platoon leader standing outside of a house or a room or basically having to enter the unknown without knowing what's inside there. And we have amazing close quarters battle drills, which were developed really because of the unknown of entering a confined space. After the 1970s, a lot of terrorist hostage situations, things like that, that tactic was developed. And it gives you very high likelihood of success entering an unknown space where there is a a possible enemy combatant mixed with non-combatants. We drill that entering clear of room because of basically we're entering the unknown. So we developed that tactic to address the solution that this hackathon, I think, was taking on from a different way. It's like, okay, we have that tactic, but we can do better than basically sending men and women into the unknown like that. And I also like that visualization, but the challenge gave a bunch of scenarios, which I think are amazing, which opens up how this would truly would be a game-changing technology. So there's a subway tunnel collapse, and they want you to identify and map out the layout of open routes, identify closed routes, find any location of injured people, non-injured people, where the first responders are versus where the, the people are. Another scenario is a fire inside a skyscraper. Again, identify the building layout, identify critically injured people or any people in there. And of course, you know, military guys. You know, we think of the more lethal scenarios, you know, a hostage, rescue, building clearing scenario. You want to know if there's anybody in a room you're about to enter. But you know, I I do a lot of discussions about city attacks too, just about how difficult it is when you have to clear building after building and not knowing whether there's not just enemy personnel, but if there's civilian personnel, which are always caught in the in the combat scenario, all those scenarios and and why I pushed how much this would be a game changer for all military operations, not just lethal scenarios, but into law enforcement, into first responders. In the modern day, how hard is this challenge of, I just don't know what's inside that room.
1: No, no, sure, sure. I mean, it's really interesting when you talk about, you know, the first responder situation. Our key partner here in the UK that we're developing our solutions with, they, they come from a background where they're supported by the firefighters here in the UK. And the work they were doing was based around situations where firefighters, they arrive at a burning house. And if anyone tells them that there's someone in, still in there, they don't have a big discussion about it. I mean, they put the breathing apparatus on and they go, they pile in. to to save life is always the absolute number one priority. So you have teams of two and four in breathing apparatus going into smoke-filled environments where visibility can be pretty much zero. And currently, and pretty much all around the world, there's no real way of tracking those individuals once they go into those smoke-filled rooms. So you've got a radio communication, you're talking back and forth to your command post, but as you're doing a sort of a fingertip search and they do this, they, they go along the wall and they're just doing a fingertip search for survivors. If they become a casualty themselves at any moment, that's an incredibly difficult situation because they could be a foot away from their colleague and collapse. And there's no way that their team knows that. And so that's when firefighters you know, lose their lives a foot or so away from the people that can rescue them. So our partners were tasked with this idea of creating... A lightweight tracking system, individual tracking system, using a combination of sensors, so inertia motion sensors, so essentially creating a, a start point, which, of course, in the military terms, could be a breach point, but in in this case, would be the door you enter by, and that, and some millimetric wave radar that you could begin not only to track yourself, but to actually start building up a picture of the room, that volumetric space in real time. So as as you were working your way through it and going up the staircases, the guys back in the fire truck at the command post could then begin to. Under- understand understand where everybody was. You could tag points of interest. So as you reached survivors and then passed survivors back down the chain, you'd be able to indicate the number of people that you had found, which could then be collated with the testimony of other survivors of how many people were in the building to start with. And that obviously gives you data. Uh, And that's the kind of work that we were then bringing to this military-led hackathon. And I think that was really one of the key things that attracted a lot of attention. Because of course, that small unit situation of two or four people going into a very hostile environment, I want of a better phrase, is pretty similar to the situation that you've described there, John, when it's you know that four man team that are supposed to clear a room. It's different but similar.
0: Yeah, no. I actually say in a lot of my presentations to people that want to train urban operations, they want to train that four man enter and clear a room, which has, you know, if you back it up, the military challenges of entering that room. But what I tell people too, from my own experience is, you know, back yourself up to a leader task of maintaining awareness of where all your people are going through this operation and how challenging that becomes for that person outside the building down the street in his vehicle trying to, okay, I got one squad in this building. I have one squad in that building or, and how quickly that can overwhelm a leader. I'm sure the mentors of the challenge articulated that, but crazy that that would be a capability for military or law enforcement or emergency personnel.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, we've been working here in the UK, our customer group is similar to the group that we've been talking to in the US for us delivering capability to. And we've been lucky enough to take part in a number of exercises up to sort of company level urban exercises. And being right in the heart of a sort of free-flowing scenario where you've got a bunch of guys playing the bad guys and it's a sort of free play, as they say, so you know, they're, they're running around as they want to. And I asked someone so bluntly, how does your command know where you are? Or all are? And we were in this kind of abandoned school, this sort of complex where you're in. And he said, well, it's just, you know, you're just on the radio and, and describing, you know, where you are at, at any one point. And then that's obviously being noted up the chain. People are noting that down, but of course that's a very fluid situation. And you've got a state now where you are beginning to bring in sort of sensors into that platoon, you know, like a small UGVs and even small UAVs. I've seen, um, you know, Black Hornet UAVs be used or being tested. But there's still no way of creating that single visual picture that everybody can take part in and understand even the most basic level, you know, what floor is everybody on you know, right now, how far away are you from each other? And if you indicate that you've got into a contact, that you've found the enemy, that that's be able to be overlaid. And I appreciate that in the mechanized world, you know, we've had blue force trackers for, well, 20 plus years now, uh, probably a bit longer. And you really want to try to be able to get that down, you know, hopefully to the individual of that blue force track. Yeah, from somebody who used
0: those in 2003. And as you are just talking, I, just, I visualized that icon on that computer, which usually is GPS. Sometimes it's not GPS-based or satellite-based. and But we're talking about a specific dense urban environment. So you have the electronic signals complications. You have, okay, yeah, the icon's going to show you a building. It won't tell you what floor they're on and how important all that becomes people just don't understand how much work still needs to be done in, specifically in the urban environment, whether it's situational awareness of personnel or the environment, which are are different. I usually tell people that the the highest risk military operation I foresee in urban warfare of the future continues to be these large-scale city attacks intermixed with populations of thousands still in the environment and the density of ever-increasing urbanization and the physical infrastructure. But the most likely scenarios is humanitarian assistance, massive damage caused by global warming or as urban continues to flow in coastal areas. We just did a major conference with the, the Indo-Pacific region who have the world's most number of megacities, but also is the highest risk to national disasters from earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, an increasing amount of damage that these events cause on the increasing urban world, how much, again, the simple ability to see through debris, see through walls becomes a major, like the major challenge when you're doing those missions of post-disaster, post-conflict operations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've got to start small. It's absolutely right to have that vision of being able to create a real-time map of the environment. And we had a Map London in real time and, and be aware of everyone else. And that's an ambition. And who knows how far away that is. But right now, as we to sort of go back how we started, I don't know what's through that door. I, I don't know what the next 10 foot by 10 foot space, uh, whether it's occupied uh, or not. And until I can start doing that and then build it up piece by piece, then the rest of it almost becomes, well, you know, that's a great vision. But first of all, tell me before I step through this next door, what's going on five foot uh, in front of me?
0: Yeah. Let's get into that. So see-through wall. Can you break that down for us? Like, What exactly can we see through today? What technology are you developing? Is it handheld? How does it work? How is it different than, like we were talking about before, a fiber optic cable, you slide under a door, or a mirror on a stick? What is it?
1: Okay. Well, to answer the first bit about you know why it's different from all the you know mirror and stick and, and fibre optics, of course, the key things you don't need to penetrate the door or the the wall to actually see what's going on, and that again, for all the obvious reasons, is a pretty good thing to be doing. And there are lots of situations where you just physically can't penetrate that barrier. For example, what we do, what we've developed, and we've developed it under funding from the Ministry of Defence here in the UK, so it's a funded program, and we have a sponsor essentially within the army that we're supplying. To solve a particular problem i think that's really key actually to start with back to the whole point of, of starting with one problem and then building up so essentially our problem set was that our users wanted to know before they made an explosive breach whether or not there was someone within a few feet of that breach point point. and you can imagine in hostage rescue situations the one thing you don't want to do is to blow that hole thinking that someone that you're trying to rescue is actually huddled a few feet you know, away from it, where they're going to be in the, le- the lethal blast area. So, we had a very quite constrained mission to solve. And how we've solved that is through, as you say, a handheld system, it's a, an ultra wideband radar system. That in itself is not new technology, as I'm sure many of your listeners or anyone that wants to Google, you'll see ideas of, since the 90s of people talking about ultra-wideband UWB as a solution to this problem. What we've been able to do is to make that system a lot smaller and lighter. I think that's really key. And to be much more discriminating in understanding what the movement that we can see behind that barrier is. So where we've come from with this technology actually from the medical space. So way back, almost two years ago now, we were funded in a partnership with a big hospital here in the UK, uh, Royal Papworth Hospital in Cambridge, a right? very famous hospital. Um, and the problem they had was actually in their sleep clinic, um, where at, you know, in, with people that have sleep apnea have to go into one of these sleep clinics and you get attached, a load of devices get attached uh, to you and they're monitoring your breathing and your movement. And the problem is that if you attach all of these things to somebody, it actually basically can give you sleep apnea because it's really uncomfortable. So you're, you know, your, your sleep is disturbed. So the problem set we, we were given there was, is there some way that I can monitor someone's movement and breathing without touching them? Can we have a device that they can just sleep normally? Um, and that's where we took the ultra wide band radar first of all, and we positioned it uh, under the bed and the reason we did it, we put it under the bed, was no, some, there wasn't some amazing uh, insight behind that. It's just we wanted it under the bed so people wouldn't kick it out of the way. That it would just, it would just be, you know, an inoffensive thing sitting under the bed that you know that a cleaner wouldn't, you know, unplug it by accident through it in the night or something. So there was no, there was no magic to that. So we we, we put it under the bed, um, and we did a year-long clinical trial. We had about four hundred and fifty patients uh, went went through that that sleep clinic. Um, and as we were going through it we, we 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 could we quickly were able to to ascertain that we could record the breathing of a human very accurately, so within about a quarter of a breath per minute difference between our system, which isn't touching you uh, and a at a contact system so you and I right now are breathing between twelve and sixteen breaths per minute give or take um so a quarter of a breath is 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 pretty good, and that's we can therefore we can we can distinguish we could we 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 could distinguish uh, human presence, and then we realised of course that we were doing that through a barrier. And you know, as, as I mentioned, I have a sort of a defence background, a defence industry background, and then we sort of put two and two together and said, you know, we we knew there was this 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 mission, this requirement, to see through a door, and we thought, well, if we can see through a hospital bed, which is quite a quite a quite a chunky piece of equipment that I'm sure we can see through a door. Uh, and it turned out, you know, we could. Um, we took that to the Ministry of Defence. And there's a, a really, a really good uh, innovation funding stream here uh, by what we call the Defense Accelerator, um, which is sort of a equivalent of the you know, Army Research Lab sort of rolled in with, with DARPA and you know a whole lot of people. And its mission is to fund uh, you know technologies innovation and we were awarded a, a contract and uh, you know just over a year ago now, so we 're just over a year into that project we are where we are now we 've managed to get that down to a to a handheld device and we 've been on a number of exercises uh, We now have units permanently uh, given over to two of our customer groups right now, so they 've got units with them that they just are are playing with and we're just doing user experience trials with and you know hopefully in the new year we'll be able to start locking down those final UXs and 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 get it the the product into the hands of of the users where where it needs to be
0: it sounds impressive so handheld device as an old infantry guy i love the lighter part of it now like you said i've seen some of this technology especially in law enforcement SWAT teams and things like that. I always saw pictures of you basically slamming it up against a wall, which does increase the risk to the team or whatever. Has your technology been able to incorporate any type of standoff to back up but still be able to penetrate the you know the hospital bed or the wall?
1: Yeah. I mean, yes, you absolutely can stand off. And by I mean, you can imagine in the hospital bed situation, you know, the, the device was actually sat on the floor. So already it was uh, it was stood off from the barrier that it was going to go through. Um, we can stand it off. Um, we can also, of course, you can uh, connect it um, either Bluetooth, uh, uh, Wi-Fi. And, and I recognise there are environments where you don't want to be emitting uh, a Wi-Fi signal, for example, or where where your ECM is going to jam that. But that is a capability, perhaps, perhaps particularly in law enforcement, where perhaps that jamming is not quite as as much of an issue. So we can do an internal uh, throwing throwing the the image to. Uh, a a device that's stood off uh, so the user can be stood off so yes we we can do that it
0: sounds like an amazing technology and i can i could see why you'd win a innovation challenge to be able to to do some of the things you're talking about not just see through walls but to give a, a broader situational awareness of active awareness of living things inside of urban environments but what are the some of the limitations today that still need to be addressed? Can it penetrate most forms of walls? Because, like I tell people, every city is different. Every a mud wall is different than a concrete rebar reinforced, heavy clad wall. And I'm sure the military the military always wants more. But c- can you see through concrete versus drywall?
1: I knew John, you were going to ask me. Con- I reread your article on concrete this morning. I knew you were going to ask me that. I prepared myself. I re- I, I reread that concrete. Uh, look I mean, let's sort of get down to the 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 reality we're designed although again our mission that we we set up in this particular device was to penetrate sort of modern interior barriers so what do i mean by that i mean like uh, standard fire doors which you see in office blocks single brick double brick stud walling all of those things everything that a modern home uh, and a modern office is made of, so we we need to be able to penetrate those and and to penetrate uh, a decent distance through them and to get an accurate reading and we can do that if you want to start penetrating um, much thicker things than that, so the kind of you know really thick stone walls that you get in old buildings you know here in the u k, then you need to use different frequencies and it's a different challenge and we we have uh, been working on devices that can solve that problem as well and and had some success but that's it's a follow-on from the current mission that we're doing when you start talking about concrete and rebar then the reality is that we're a radar based system and that uh, you know if <laughs> no one listening to this is going to be surprised to, to to hear that you know radars bounce off metal so those are very challenging things to penetrate but As a side effect, almost of the fact that it will bounce off those types of barriers, you have the what you can do is create a a second capability, which is telling a breaching team where they can't breach. So essentially, what you want to start developing is almost a two a two mode within within a device, which you know what 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 we're developing. Where first of all, I'm asking, well, can I breach? Yes or no. And if it's yes, now is that room occupied, or is you know the next few feet behind where I'm about to. To set off a breaching charge he had occupied, and that's, uh, that's what we're working on so that's a long answer to your short question which is concrete concrete is still is, it still has the, the impact that you wrote about in your in your article as being one of the most important things in the battlefield. We haven't defeated it.
0: No, I appreciate that. And and you're right. I'm such a fan of discussing concrete, but I'm also a fan of discussing building materials as I become a student of urban environments. And like you say, it's that's why when you have a challenge like this, it's so multifaceted, you know, narrowing it down to evolving steps, starting with interior walls. But you hit on the head and some of my other stuff about... Even if you talk about going through interior spaces, which most people point to this Israeli military concept of, of going through walls, never presenting themselves on the street or an alley. And then I think about that as, depending if your military is trained in that, that takes some expertise, not just on the, physically punching through walls, With whether you're talking explosive breach, you got to know what's on the other side of that, And it, but also you just the engineering of, well, is that the wall I should be trying to punch through? Is that a load-bearing wall? Is it... Am I going to hit, like you said, am I going to hit steel? Am I going to hit a a stud? I could see, I see immediate application of simple seeing right in front of me versus we all have our science fiction dreams. And I have my science fiction dream of basically a a drone that can fly into a building and map it for you beforehand and, or tell you whether it's even a building you need to care about because there's nobody in it. And can I continue forward? But you, of course we can't get there until we address the first order baby steps. Not saying what you did was baby steps for sure, it's huge, especially to have standoff. I think that's to me as a, a small time scholar of this work, not to have to slam a big device up against a wall to be able to see through it is huge.
1: yeah, I mean absolutely. I mean, when we were you know we, as if we've had the benefit both of of the, of the sort of user group in the u s and this you know user group in the u k, and it's only, I think anyway, it, it's only when you're having that level of conversation you know, with with the you know, the private, the corporal, the sergeant, the absolutely tip of the spear, that you realise some of these really basic things that kind of don't don't impact you as a as a civilian about how this would be used. Um, you know, when we first started thinking about it, we said, Oh well, you know, we'll stick it on a tripod and it will sit on a tripod and um it'll scan for a you know a period of time and the guys were going, We haven't got you know we haven't got time to set a tripod up. What are you t- you know, what are you talking about? You know, be serious. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, yeah. So scrap that idea. You know, it's got to be, it's got to be handheld. It's got to be quick. And and I think that you know, we and, and we we had some great conversations where, where, where we were very concerned at, at one point where we said, look, we we, we feel we're pretty accurate, but we're not 100 percent accurate. There's all sorts of reasons why we might tell you, or the device might tell you the room is occupied, uh, but actually it isn't occupied, or, or or vice versa. And and some of the guys said to us, look, that that's okay. Because we never really trust any piece of technology, you know, our, our, our skills and drills for entering a room, we will always assume that there are people in there that are trying to kill us. You know, the, your, your technology won't won't completely change and shouldn't change how we approach that room. But there are a whole bunch of, of missions where you might want to make quick decisions about where you bypass, for example, so you just don't go into those rooms. So. You know, you think about uh, uh, the Mumbai, Mumbai situation where they, uh, the hotel was taken over. Um, and, of course, the hotel's got hundreds of, of, of rooms, hundreds of, of, of bedrooms, uh, and only a an, limited number of attackers. So you could imagine in a similar situation just wanting to go down a corridor and making a very fast yes, no of which of these rooms had anybody in them at all. And, and, and that you, you, obviously, you're at risk. But in those situations, you know, risk is is, is just an accepted part of what's going on. But if you can just have a discrimination and get down 10 rooms to one room where lots of movement and and the system is kicking off straight away, then that's going to be directing um, your next sort of kinetic activity.
0: No, you're singing my tune. And you probably know that I was in Mumbai studying that attack last summer. Yeah, last summer we went in and the main hotel, which was held for three days as a former infantry guy, Of course, we're studying the overall city and and the actions of the, but that one main hotel that was held is a labyrinth. I mean, it is a nightmare to think about, but walking around and it has so many different aspects of any hotel I've ever seen The hidden doors, different passageways and don't get me started.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, that also speaks to some of the challenges of, of, of urban training. And I know this is something that you've you've talked about a lot yourself. But you know, one of the things I've noticed, um, you know, training environments, when you talk about clearing a room, um, the rooms are not representative in general of a real uh, room. So, you know, you'll see the guys breaching into some 10 foot square or 20 foot square place. But the actual room itself will basically be empty. There'll be like a couple of sticks of furniture. And you can, you can almost appreciate why you don't, you know, you don't want to, you know, you haven't got the money to, 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 to furnish these things, you know, properly. But it, but it does create a challenge because, you know, I'm, I'm sat here in a, in a 20 foot by 20 foot space, but it's, it's one of our in engineering rooms I'm, I'm sat in. And, and so we've got lots of racking, we've got shelving, we've got cupboards. Um, it's a bit of a sort of funny shaped, L shaped room. It, it, it's incredibly complex by itself. So you talk about you know mega cities being incredibly complex, and you're absolutely right. But a single room can be incredibly complex, and that I know you know I don't have an answer yet to that to that challenge. But I think that's something that's going to have to be addressed with all technologies. Is that they they can't just work on a on a training area where they're put into a you know a sort of a ten foot empty box which pretends to be a hotel room or a, a whatever room it's it's pretending to be. You know, you've really got to start getting out into into real environments and understanding exactly what a modern office block is full of and, and and run your technology you know through through those environments I think.
0: Absolutely. I have a friend a company called 4GD that's really investing heavily in creating a realistic urban training environment which I think just like you said when we train in these open spaced open cinder block rooms with nothing in them maybe you throw a couch in there somebody donated how it leads to not only bad habits over-reliance on your tactic, but also leads you to not truly face the challenges, which is what we don't want in military operations, truly face the challenges of the operating environment, because we say it's too hard to replicate. Where even your technology, like we were talking about earlier, not only does it address a challenge, but it also incorporates a new, not just a new piece of equipment, a new piece of information feed, which in the human space, in the cognitive space of this challenge, it's really hard to replicate. Again, all the decisions that have to be made all the information feeds and that's why I love discussing not just the see-through capability but what what that'll do to your operations once you have that technology and it's a new piece of information feed that you're getting how does it change your approach to the environment
1: for sure and I think you know the, the other thing that's not talked enough I, I think about is is the logistics of course of, of of the urban environment of the pressure on your logistics chain because again back to the Situation where you know, you're taught how to clear a room, and let's say, and you know this much better than I. I'm just again talking from from a civilian point of view. But you know the drill is: uh, a you throw a grenade in, you know, either, either you know either a flashbang or a fragmentation, and you might you know half a magazine to the right and half a magazine to the left, or whatever the drill is, and and, and then the room is considered clear. Uh, but of course, back to the point that urban modern urban environments are so cluttered. You're probably not going to be able to to um, neutralise all the threats just with that, because people can just be hidden behind a sofa or hidden, um, you know, behind a desk or all sorts of things that that, that, that constitute as as cover rather than um, rather than concealment. And so your your logistics burden per room can be three, four, five times perhaps what you've trained for. Um, And therefore, I suppose devices like ours and and the other people are developing, if all that we're doing is telling you the places not to go to, first of all, we're just telling you where you need to concentrate the main effort, then you're helping with the logistics burden as well, I hope. Again, you're, you're really singing my tune. And
0: I think that's why I'm so excited when you started discussing not just the ability to see through a wall, but also the continued evolution of this is to be able to see, which is huge, just the fact of, is there a person in there or is there not? But then to be able to identify actual attributes of the room. Because I constantly tell people counterterrorism, hostage rescue is an aspect of urban warfare that is very important. But in a lot of the operations, large scale combat operations I'm talking about, the entering clear room is not a tactic that will be used. Like you said, it'll be a grenade into a room first, or it's literally battles within buildings that are happening because the enemies what enemy are you presenting to the military training exercise? Are you presenting an enemy that's just standing in a room by you know with a weapon and then there's a you know a non-combatant in there too and you have to discriminate. Again, that's counterterrorism, intelligence driven raid that relies on speed and security. You're talking about battles like the Battle of Fallujah, the, the battle of Murari, any of these major combat Battles where the enemy has had some time, knows you're coming. Um, they establish fighting positions within rooms where you're entering clear room tactic. Yeah, you're going to keep entering rooms like that until you don't. And now you're facing where even when you throw a grenade in there, it's not doing anything. They're ready for you. And that's the evolution of, that's a subset of urban warfare that I do a lot of research on. From World War II to battles happening in Iraq, Syria today, you're not entering that room with that counterterrorism tactic. And the more you know about that room, the better it's going to lead to your success because that's why I talked about we're talking about now is how technologies like this will change the way we approach the modern urban environment or the modern, to me, urban warfare. It's changing and you can't just keep presenting the same open space, same type of enemy because that's the, the enemy gets a vote
1: no for sure for sure and you know n- n- none of you know hi- history is is everything because none of this is new you know you get all listeners and you know you know battle of manila back in the second world war uh, and and the university complex i think it was that the japanese had had bunkered themselves into yeah it was all hall yeah you know and you know they they had actually physically installed bunkers within within the rooms there's no reason to believe that a that a determined enemy in the future will just Go back to that. So yeah, you know that that simple twenty foot by twenty foot space is, is going to be something that's going to have to be reduced. Um, and uh, yeah, and we're going to need to keep on pushing for for some technology to to help the people that are going to have to do that. That's got to be the mission.
0: Like you said, it, it starts with the the very simples. I'm the classic guy. Like okay, yeah, tell me how I'm going to do that process with that technology, but I'm going to do it. I needed to be able to do it all day, all night for the next. I mean, if you think of like the Battle of Fallujah, 30 to 60,000 spaces were cleared because they were literally clearing every structure physically. And some people go, well, you're not going to be able to do that in this scenario in this type of a city. And like, well, it still may be the requirement. So Alex, I think I'll enter it there. We could talk about this for a long time because the capability excites me so much. I and mean, I know there's still a lot of work being done, but a huge congratulations to you to to winning the innovation challenge or the hackathon and being able to increase situational awareness unlike we've ever been able to before. And I'm excited to see it evolve and see it hopefully on future training environments that I visit.
1: I look forward to that too. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity, John. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Alex.
0: Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.